Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 2, Episode 3 St. Bees to Ennerdale Bridge Champagne, a bubble bath, and an Eastern European surprise. What a delightful hamlet Ennerdale Bridge is. It's the sort of place in which Agatha Christie's Miss Marple could go about her busybody snooping without appearing in the least bit eccentric. The village was locked down, a people desert, except for a knot of disgruntled walkers milling about outside the Shepherd's Arms, which was closed to patrons most afternoons. Out of the blue, as though by osmosis, word went around that pints were being pulled at the Fox and Hounds. In a flash, the mob disappeared, leaving Peter, Colleen and me to trudge along behind. Many of the people we'd stumbled upon during the day were cradling drinks in the sunny patio outside the entrance to the Fox and Hounds. The sun-loving Geordie, in a summer shirt, appeared content with his stout. The two accountants sipped pints. The mother and daughter, who we learned were locals from Cumbria, hovered over their teetotal soft drinks. We joined them and raised glasses in a toast to the success of our first day's trekking. Real estate dealers in Australia spruik three essentials when buying a house. Position, position, and position. From that standpoint, our lodgings were an estate agent's dream come true. The house sat on top of a rise, high above the village, overlooking Annadale Water and a majestic mountain backdrop. To crown it all, an avenue of perfect summer flowers transformed the paved entrance to the house into a blaze of colour. No sooner had we got out of the car than a jowly bespectacled head of a middle-aged woman craned over the garden gate at the gable end of the house. Oh, you're wearing boots and a car. How confusing. Entrance here, please. Then I come round. The woman sang out before disappearing into the shrubbery. The front door swung open invitingly as we hauled our luggage along the colourful avenue of prize-winning potted flowers. As I approached the entry, the landlady's chubby face peered round the half-open door. She didn't look directly at me, but stared fixedly at my feet. Holding the door firmly to bar access, she leaned across my path and pointed into a wooden rack fixed to the vestibule wall. Boots here, please, she ordered, in a firm but not unpleasant sing-song voice that was heavy with Eastern European vowels. Our hostess's foot-phobia and unwavering scrutiny turned the simple task of stashing boots into a frustrating gymkhana. She kept the three of us, together with our bags and baggage, crammed into the narrow vestibule until the boots were safely stowed in their special slots. The humiliating and chaotic episode took the edge off a cracking day, leaving me tight-lipped and exasperated. Before we had time to regain our wits, she'd herded us upstairs with the brisk efficiency of a pre-dawn Gestapo raid. The most disconcerting thing throughout the whole episode was that our plump, soft-skinned landlady fluttered about, loosely draped in a flowing floral caftan, whilst nodding and smiling into the middle distance. "'Single room here? This is double,' she explained, pointing at the doors. "'Breakfast, 8.30. Here, bedroom keys. Just knock on front door.' I let you in. As a rule, I don't give front door keys. Sausage, bacon, black pudding, hash brown, fried tomato, fried mushroom, and baked beans. 
Eggs, fried or poached? Packed lunch, large or small? She asked, smiling, and for the first time looked directly at each one of us in turn. She tilted her head to one side and lifted her eyebrows to signal that an answer was required right then and there. It was clear dithering was not permitted. Fried, without black pudding, and no packed lunch, thank you, was all I could muster. She noted my order, then turned to face Peter and Colleen. While she was distracted, I seized the opportunity to escape and hauled my belongings towards the single here bedroom. I felt punch-drunk and annoyed with myself for being so skilfully outmaneuvered and bullied into premature commitments. Nutty pine corridors ran off in all directions, and there were more doors than is required for a British bedroom farce. The wall space was covered with glass and painted folk art hangings, each priced and ready for sale. It appeared our landlady kept busy during the off-season winter months. The single here room was in fact a twin share that may have violated every workplace health and safety regulation ever brought down to protect the senses from overload. The small room was jam-packed with furniture, but with nowhere to sit down. All available space, including the walls, was cluttered with sentimental bric-a-brac, the centrepiece of which was a beautifully framed embroidered textile that read, Thank you for not smoking. Whilst unpacking, I caught a few stray words ricocheting down the knotty pine corridor to my room. They were, As a rule, I don't, and Black Pudding. I assumed new arrivals were being shown their place. The communal bathroom was a masterpiece of hygiene that required a Terry Thomas fashion sideways dancing routine to get through the narrow passage into the facilities. Every available surface was crammed with toiletries, shelves, bath surrounds, the window ledge, and most of the floor displayed more cleansing paraphernalia than is usually on display at a village shop. Interestingly, Unlike many small villages, this bathroom had its own red pillar box. The miniature pillar box, in its allotted place under the washstand, between stacks of toilet rolls and shampoo containers, awaited not letters, but postage of discarded toothpaste tubes and soap wrappings. Later we motored to the village for dinner. The Fox and Hounds was more restaurant than pub. Our dinner was good, but the place unsettling and the beer pricey. There was nowhere to sit that wasn't invaded by the flashing lights and electronic racket from a bank of unused slot machines. Intense strobe lighting and mind-curdling noise may be considered a relaxing accompaniment to brazed goat in Guantanamo Bay, but it wasn't quite the atmosphere we three gourmands wished to find in picturesque Ennerdale Bridge. Fortunately, Colleen's doings of the day were sufficiently interesting to divert our attention from the niggling electronic intrusions. After we disappeared into the mist, Colleen returned to the Priory Church, which looked drab and sinister in the gloom. Inside the church, the yellow light was weak and murky, and the chilled air tasted of mould. Colleen was intrigued by the measured toll from the church bell. In the stillness between each peal, hushed figures filled the pews. The congregation were dressed in black, and the women wore veils. Colleen left before the coffin arrived. She felt she was intruding on the mourner's grief. 
Back at the farmhouse, she stood on the curb with the local villagers as the funeral procession emerged through the mist. A slow-moving column of mourners walked behind the hearse. They were sombre, and the only sound was their crunching footsteps on the gravel road. None of the villagers moved nor spoke until the procession disappeared into the mist, up the hill, towards the cemetery, off to the south. For several decades, funerals along the Cumbrian coast have been a chancy business. Nobody knew for certain how complete the bodies in the coffins were. Secret and well-organised body-snatching was officially sanctioned by the government. The corpse of former Sellafield employees and those who died in road accidents were systematically plundered for body parts as samples for a covert research project into radiation poisoning. Officially, tissue samples were taken. The grisly truth is that whole organs were being harvested. In one case, a former Sellafield employee who died of leukemia had his liver, lungs and several vertebrae removed without his family's knowledge or consent. The final resting place of the official stash of body parts remains a mystery to this day. Much of the local population embraced Sellafield because it is a significant employer. Acceptance persists, in spite of the unusually high instance of leukemia in the district. Without jobs, a lot of locals would either have to leave the area or swell the dole queues. Machiavelli would certainly have recognised dependence as a powerful dynamic in the strategic thinking when selecting the site for a toxic waste dump. The Shepherd's Arms is a traditional country pub that had resisted the slot machine and TV invasion. As with most pubs that serve hot meals, the air was infused with the biting tang of malt vinegar and a background whiff of stale gravy. The public bar was split level. A mob we recognised as coast-to-coast walkers were huddled together in the lower level eating. We sat at the upper level, where the locals were drinking and smoking around the bar. Like true blue Aussie wowsers, we were forced to leave the pub after a couple of beers, due to an acrid infusion of tobacco smoke that gradually poisoned our corner. Back at the digs, I was delighted when the Keeper of the Keys greeted us with a replay of the sing-song directives and foot-ogling ritual. After a good feed and a few pints, the rerun of her cabaret act was applauded for the truly polished performance that it is. Before going to bed, I went to hang my shirt to dry in Peter and Colleen's ensuite shower. Their bedroom was in darkness. Colleen grabbed me by the door with a keep-quiet finger to her lips, before guiding me towards the open window. Our landlady was relaxing on the candlelit patio below. She sipped champagne whilst reclining in a bubbling spa bath that perfumed the night air with the essence of wildflowers. Like naughty children, we chuckled amongst ourselves, then gasped wide-eyed as all hell broke loose. Suddenly, we were enveloped in a brilliant golden glow and a terrifying blast that was so intense the whole building shook and the thunderous aftershock made my intestines quiver with fright. What on earth was that? We gasped open-mouthed. Two RAF jet fighters, on night exercise, roared along the narrow gorge not a hundred yards behind our digs. The belief that Sellafield was well protected from terrorist attack seemed more certain as each new fragment of evidence was revealed. One question remained, however. Were the fighter aircraft on the official flight path? 
or had the pilots deviated off their course to salute the buxom blonde taking a bubble bath under the stars. Moments later, all was stillness and black, with only the low murmur of the perfumed water from the garden below to sweeten the silence. It was time for bed, and so day one drew to a memorable and happy close.